Let me begin by thanking all of you for coming out to this talk. You know, it's really weird now having fans and people who like recognize me in like Catholic bookstores. Uh, I'm just a regular everyday person, you know, and so I'm just really honored that you're out here to listen to me give a talk tonight. Um, so let me just start off with a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for the gift of your life, for the gift of your body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. Thank you for the gift of your mother, the gift of your church, the gift of the Pope, the gift of our bishops and our priests. And Christ, thank you for the gift of everlasting life that you've given to us through the cross. God, I pray that you will help me to be a faithful and lowly servant tonight in sharing my story, how you changed my life, how you continue to change my life, and how you continue to inspire new love in me every day. I pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I thought I'd start off with a funny story. So as you all know, I was originally Baptist. I was American Baptist. And so it's interesting because with the American Baptists, there's a mix of kind of people who are liberal and conservative theologically. And so, um, you know, growing up, I grew up with both of these traditions. Now, I wasn't really inculcated into anti-Catholicism. My parents were just kind of like, you know, just stay Baptist and you can go around. Hey, you can be non-denominational. You can be Southern Baptist, but just don't become Catholic. And so I remember one time during my freshman year in college, uh, it was the fall semester, I was going around campaigning for this politician and I eventually got you know, uh, stranded from the rest of my group and I was lost in this neighborhood and I really needed to go use the facilities. And so I didn't wanna go to like a house and ask cause that's like bad for the politician you're campaigning for, you know, like. <laughs> but then also I just thought like, okay, that, that'd be kind of awkward. And so I saw that there was this Catholic church down the street and I said, okay, well, all the people are going in, so mass is probably happening right now, but I'm sure that like, if I go in through a side door, nobody would notice me come in, right? And I can just go in and out. And so I go up to this door that looks innocent enough. I open the door and the priest is in the middle of his homily and he looks over at me and I shut the door really quick. So then I go through the main door into the back and, you know, there's like a, a Filipino lady sitting in front of me and, um, you know, lots of people. And as I get into the chapel, you know, for me as a Baptist, having not been in a Catholic church that many times before, you know, I saw the baptismal or the, the water, or the holy water font. I saw like the oils. I saw the statues. And I was like, this is a circus. You know, I thought this was crazy. And I asked, I asked the same Filipino lady, like, hey, where's the, um, where's the facilities? And she pointed down the aisle and to the left. And so I had to walk through half of the church during mass, go do my business and then walk right out. And as I was walking out, I texted my dad and I was like, you know, my dad, he's the Baptist minister. And I was like, hey dad, guess where I was? I was in a Catholic church. And my dad was like, okay, just don't think about becoming Catholic. And I started sending pictures of uh, Madonna and child. And my dad was like, stop, no, 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 no. <laughs> well, we know how that turned out. <laughs> so yes, my name is Swan Sona, philosophy student at Kansas State. I run a podcast and YouTube channel called Intellectual Conservatism. And tonight I'm gonna to go through my story and it's gonna start all the way from my childhood into high school and eventually my conversion to Catholicism in college. And so in case you're wondering, you might say like, okay, Swan, what kind of name is that? So I'm originally from Northeastern India in a state called Manipur and I was born in 2000. My dad came to the United States in 2001 to study to be a Baptist minister. And so, you know, I grew up in a really good Baptist environment there was a big emphasis on scripture. Uh, we very much studied the life of Christ. And you know, I honestly have no complaints about my Baptist upbringing. I mean, it was precisely the emphasis on Jesus and on scripture that eventually led me to be Catholic. And I still remember growing up around like missionaries from Africa, from other parts of Asia. I mean, it was a beautiful upbringing where I got to see the universality of the Christian faith or what we would now say the Catholicity, right, of Christianity. And, as time went on, I guess you could say that um, I started asking various questions. And so the first part of my conversion story is gonna be from doubt to faith. The second part's gonna be my journey from being liberal to conservative. And the last part's gonna be my journey from being Baptist to Catholic. So let me just start with my journey from doubt to faith. So when I was in elementary school, 
I remember I was, you know, sitting down in the cafeteria and there was this kid across from me and he asked me a question because he knew I was the, a PK, right? A pastor's kid. And he said, okay, Swan, why did Jesus ascend into heaven? Like, don't we still kind of need him? Like, why did he leave us on the earth? And, you know, for me, uh, with my, you know, being young as a Christian, not really doing apologetics and just being a pastor's kid, having like a Crayola basic Christianity, I was like, gee, I don't know. And then I just started talking about John 3.16 and I don't, that didn't really answer his question, right? But then I really was nagged by that question. And he kept on asking me more questions about like Adam and Eve, the fall. You know, this is pretty weird for an elementary school kid to be thinking about. But, um, you know, I, I just was consumed by these questions. And so I kept on asking them. And then eventually, like my dad, who's studying in seminary, he lets me read some of his theology books. I start reading biblical commentaries. My dad takes me to Christian bookstores and I'm picking up apologetics books. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard these names before, but like William Lane Craig, right? Um, Gary Habermas, Michael Lacona, Lee Strobel, you know, all these guys. I'm reading and devouring these books as a kid. And all of a sudden I go from this kind of basic Christianity to one where I realize like the intellectual richness of the Christian faith. And I realized that faith and reason aren't opposed to each other. And so I was already really fascinated with how deep and rich the Christian faith is. And so I would say that I had a really positive Baptist upbringing. But of course, you know, all of us go through times of doubt. And so about the time I got into middle school, um, since I grew up in the United States, I didn't have my biological grandparents. And, and just to talk a little bit about them. So my grandparents on my father's side, they are the first on his side to be Christians in our village in India. And then in terms of my mom's side, my great grandparents are the first to adopt Christianity. And so it's really fascinating to think about how Christianity is so young in my family's history and also how I'm maybe the first Catholic from my village. So it's like, okay, we're going to set a trend, right? Um, <laughs> but what astonished me growing up was that, you know, even though I didn't have my biological grandparents, I still had adopted grandparents in the Baptist church. And I should also mention, it was precisely the Baptist church that helped my family, you know, get together after my dad moved to the United States he went alone and then eventually the Baptist church raised the funds for us to all be together. And so, you know, when I give this talk tonight and when I talk about my conversion from Protestantism to Catholicism, you know, I'm not here tonight to bash Protestants. I'm not here tonight to say anything bad about our, our separated brethren. What I'm actually here to say is that precisely those things that I grew up with, the love of Christ, the love of scripture, the love of the church and God's people, these are the things that inspired me. And so, my adopted grandmother, um, you know, in the Baptist church, she was the first uh, death that I'd experienced in my childhood, and she had died from pancreatic cancer. And by the end of her life, she had completely lost her memories of me. And so I was a stranger to her. And then when it came to my adopted grandfather, he had died from a stroke. And I still remember, you know, being in his hospital, in the hospital room and going up to him and just you know, even though he was unconscious, he was in a coma, just saying, hey, grandpa, I love you. And I just want to focus on my adopted grandfather a little bit. So his name was David, Grandpa David, and he loved Elvis. He loved Coca-Cola. He got me into Batman, The Flash, you know, all the DC superheroes. And my adopted grandfather, if you looked at his Bible, every single page of that Bible was filled with notes. Every single page of that Bible had a sticky note. It was underlined. It was highlighted. That man truly loved the Lord and he loved the sacred scriptures. And when my adopted grandfather passed away, he said, or before he did, he said that he wanted to be buried in such a way that his body would face the east so that when Jesus returns, he'd be able to beat everybody to Jesus and have him first. <laughs> and so for me growing up, the resurrection was such a central doctrine for me. And, you know, I remember after school, you know, the bus would drop me off and sometimes I would just walk straight to the cemetery and I'd sit down with my grandfather and pull out my Bible and I'd, I'd read 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul's talking about the resurrection. And I'd, I'd start praying and I'd say, hey, grandpa, are you there? I know that you are and that you're in heaven. Grandpa, tell grandma I said hi. Tell Jesus that I love him. You know, I guess intercession of the saints was pretty easy for me at that point, right? Praying to my grandfather and, and communicating with him. 
But as time went on, you know, these deaths, they really affected me in a deep way. And, you know, because my father's a minister, we'd often, you know, he'd often take me on his trips when he'd visit a hospital or visit somebody. And so I entered into a hospital one day, uh, it was a Catholic hospital, and there was a woman in there and she was on the very last moments of her life. And my dad brought me in and uh, he prayed for her, you know, and I remember I looked at the crucifix that was in the room and I just kind of felt like, Jesus, where are you in this woman's suffering? I mean, here she is, she's lived her whole life faithfully to you. And we're the only people who have visited her. And at that moment, I started having serious doubts about the goodness of God. I started having questions, especially because I was studying a lot of science and philosophy. I had all kinds of objections left and right to Christianity. And eventually I just said, you know what, maybe I'm gonna be agnostic. But I made one final petition and it was to William Lane Craig. So William Lane Craig, he has this ministry called Reasonable Faith. And, um, you know, he has this question, question of the week section on his website. And so I submitted a question and I was like, yeah, you know what? I got Dr. Craig this time. I was like, you know, I've given up on the Christian faith. I'm not sure anymore what to be anymore. I don't know if uh, this thing is true. Uh, it seems as if there's just so much cancer and death in the world. How can God be a good God? And I kind of shut my laptop and moved on with my life. And then about a week later, I got an email, I think from Reasonable Faith or Dr. Craig, saying that they had answered the question. And I opened my laptop and I looked at what William Lane Craig said, and that man absolutely destroyed me. All right, so like, he's a professional philosopher. He's debated atheists around the world. He's considered one of the top Christian theologians in the world. When I looked at his response, I was like, geez, I'm embarrassed. And so I said, hey, Dr. Craig, can you delete my name from the question? You can keep the question, just don't let people know it was me, right? But you know, I, I kept in touch with Dr. Craig and eventually it helped to at least have that intellectual barrier broken down. Cause I mean, Dr. Craig brought up different ways of interpreting scripture, different ways of looking at the issues that I was facing. But he even said, look, Swan, if you can at least prove the resurrection, then everything else falls together, right? And there are different beliefs that are more fundamental than other beliefs, right? And so something like, you know, whether the fall was literal or not, maybe that's open to more question. But if you at least have the resurrection, then you have a more solid foundation for the faith. And I had no objections really to the resurrection. And Dr. Craig, that's what he got his PhD in. So I'd better, you know, accept when he talks on the issue. But as time went on, uh, I began just talking to other people. I began talking to Christians again. I emailed Gary Habermas, poor man. I just emailed him so much. And then he, he pitched one of his PhD students to me, poor PhD student. And then there was a day where it finally occurred to me, like that woman who was in the hospital and she was suffering alone. She wasn't really suffering alone. That crucifix that was in the room, it wasn't Jesus just passively watching human suffering. It was God himself entering into human suffering. It was God himself entering into this mess that we've created with death and sin and destruction. And so then I realized that the very thing that that woman needed was not my philosophy and my science. It was my father's presence in that room with her in her final moments. It was that Jesus Christ who was in that room symbolized in the crucifix being there with her. And as I thought more deeply, I thought, well, look, um, I began reading more about, you know, questions related to the problem of evil and got into theoretical physics and all kinds of questions about how God could have created the world. And there was a point where I was just like, I'm not God. <laughs> I don't know how else he could have created the world. I don't know all the ins and outs of the laws of physics and modalities on future possibilities or what have you. But I said, but, but that woman needed Jesus. And so who am I to deny Jesus to her? to anybody else or to myself, when he's also the hope that I need to see my grandfather again, to see my grandmother again. And so I guess, you know, there are a few things that I learned from this experience with doubt. I think the first thing I learned was to pay attention to fact over rhetoric, right? So sometimes when you listen to atheist speakers or skeptics, they're like very rhetorically smart or they sound like really smart and they kind of intimidate you. But I stopped and I learned the self-discipline to really think about, did they actually have a good argument? You know, and if someone kind of, you know, especially um, when I debate Protestants and some of the Protestants are trained as Baptist ministers, they know how to preach a good sermon. And when I'm listening to the debate, I'm like, yeah, that guy did a really nice job presenting his case. And then I listen more closely and I look at my notes and I'm like, wait a minute, that argument doesn't add up, right? And so don't be swayed by the rhetoric, but look into the facts. 
I think the second thing I learned is that because of my apologetics upbringing, I started learning about the nuances in Christianity. So I started learning about how, for instance, the Bible didn't just plop out of the sky, right? But some bishops really had to do a lot of work in order to preserve the canon of scripture, in order to preserve the transmission of the gospels. I realized that the gospels, they were actually originally oral tradition handed down in the Christian communities and then later written down maybe 20 to 60 years after the events. And so we really need oral tradition to be reliable if the gospels are gonna be reliable as well. I think the third thing I learned is that I wanted to strive for perfection. Right? So I didn't want to settle for the easy answers anymore. I didn't want to settle for just what everybody else believed. I really wanted to get to the heart of the truth itself. All right, so now you might be wondering, how did a good Baptist boy like you end up liberal? Well, here's what happened. So, you know, when I, in, in 2016, the year that everybody wants to forget, uh, I was a democratic socialist, so go figure who I supported. Um, I was progressive because I just simply thought that's what all the smart people are, right? All the smart people believe this about human sexuality. All the smart people believe this about unborn life. And so I just thought, okay, well, I'm a smart person, so I'll just go along with the crowd. And it's surprising because at the same time I was reading scripture, I was trying to be a devout Christian. You know, I wasn't skipping Sunday. I wasn't skipping Sunday school. I wasn't skipping Wednesday night youth uh, group. But I just thought this is the right way to go. And then one night as I'm on a trip in Tennessee, uh, my friend Charles in New York, he messages me or in Brooklyn and he says, um, he says, Swan, why are you pro-choice? And I'm like, well, uh, I'm pro-choice because look, I, I believe in the dignity of human persons, but the unborn child isn't a person. They're just a clump of cells or something like that. And he slowly dismantled that argument. And then I tried to move to something else. And he kept on saying, Swan, if you listen to the arguments that you're saying, like you have to have consciousness, you have to be able to have reason and exercise that faculty of reason. Then I mean like people in comas, do they have dignity? Um, people who are cognitively impaired, do they have less humanity because of their condition? And I started realizing, whoa, okay, maybe this wasn't the right path to go down. The second thing that opened up my mind was when my family and I became American citizens in 2016. Um, you know, it's really something different because like when you actually have to make a pledge to a country, go through the citizenship process and show that you really do love the United States and you have to educate yourself in civics and that sort of thing. It really made me develop a new love for America and a love for the country that accepted me and my family. And so when my liberal and my progressive friends were mainly just saying bad things about America or they were disdaining Christianity, I started realizing that maybe I wasn't in the right crowd anymore. Now, some people would ask me, okay, Swan, why would you be American? Especially in 2016, when the nation was divided, things were going wild in the United States. And I think the answer is really simple. Look, I know about the scandals in American history. I know about the bad men who have been in power. I know about all the ways in which America has failed to live up to its ideals. But it's precisely those ideals that I believe in. It's precisely those ideals that I saw when my family entered the Midwest and entered into Kansas. The emphasis on religious liberty, the freedoms that we enjoy in the United States, I, these aren't things that I take for granted, especially as someone coming from a different country. And so when I started thinking about all these things, it made me really seriously consider whether or not I was gonna be still a liberal or progressive on these issues. But there were two big issues, obviously, that stood out. So one was abortion. But on that issue, I became pro-life pretty quick as I saw the ramifications of what was happening. The second issue, however, was more complicated and it was the issue of marriage. So, you know, growing up, uh, you know, in the early 2000s and then going into 2015, one of the big things that we had to deal with as young people and especially, you know, everybody in this room was Obergefell v. Hodges and the debate that that ensued in the country and especially in like, you know, the, the Christian churches around the nation and around the world on what their stance would be on the institution of marriage. And so what I did first is I, I went to the scriptures and I said, okay, what is the picture of marriage and human sexual relations that's in scripture? And I looked at the book of Romans elsewhere and I was like, okay, I think it's pretty obvious what the scriptures are indicating. I mean, and I even tried to read like liberal commentaries on the Greek that Paul uses. And I'm just like, I don't think these objections really work or get around the issue at hand. So I said, okay, it looks as if I'm bound by scripture 
to accept that marriage is a union of one man and one woman. But I wanted to see, are there intellectual arguments for actually believing in the traditional conception of marriage? And this is where I start running into Catholics. So I ran into uh, three guys named Robert George, Ryan T. Anderson, and Sharif Gurgis. These are three Ivy League philosophers, and they're all three, I believe they're all Catholic. And they wrote a book called What is Marriage, Man, Woman, a Defense? And that book was cited by the conservative Supreme Court justices. And so I read that book and I listened to their lectures. Like I just, I consumed every last ounce and bit of what they had to say. And I was finally convinced on intellectual grounds that yeah, it makes sense to say that marriage is a union of one man and one woman. But I started feeling really embarrassed as a Christian. Because look, I had a lot of friends who were in the LGBT community. I was a progressive. I was supporting these causes. I was, you know, supporting Bernie Sanders. I had a sticker on my laptop. I was going all out for this guy. And now I'm going in the 180 direction. And so I stumble across this talk by Robert George, and it's called Do Not Be Ashamed of the Gospel. And it was one of the most profound talks that I ever listened to. I mean, because in this talk, Robert George was hitting every single one of the fears that I had, the fear of being called bad names, the fear of being misunderstood, the fear of being humiliated in public. And he just simply said, do not be ashamed of the gospel. We were mocked from the beginning as Christians. We were insulted and rejected, but it was precisely the Christian ethic, the selfless ethic of Christ that changed the world. And so we shouldn't be ashamed of that legacy and tradition as Christians. But there was one last kind of conversion that I needed in order to finally accept what I thought was a very difficult teaching. And this last conversion was the conversion of the heart, right? So I had, you know, my faith kind of reaffirmed by the scriptures. I had my reason fulfilled by the natural law, by these thinkers uh, who have articulated defenses of marriage. But the last thing I needed was my heart to be convinced that I should accept this teaching. And my adopted, so my other adopted grandmother, she told me a story about the adopted grandfather who I'd lost in my childhood. And my adopted grandfather, David, he would take care of a, of a particular gay man. This gay man would come over and when he was homeless, my grandfather provided him a place to stay. When he needed food, my grandfather was there. And whenever this gay man would ask my grandfather, what do you believe about my lifestyle? My grandfather would say, I believe what the scriptures teach, but the scriptures also teach that I love you, that I don't reject you, that I don't push you away, that you're made in the image and likeness of God. And my grandfather, even, I never heard that story before, but even after his death, he was still teaching me this principle that we need to have truth, but we need to embrace it with grace. We need to have truth with grace. And so eventually, you know, I, I start saying, hey, guys, I think I'm conservative. And man, the knives come out. And I'm just like, nobody wants to listen to me. I try to talk to my friends about like the pro-choice issues and especially my female friends. They don't want to listen to what a guy has to say about the issue. And it's just a really difficult time in my life because I feel as if I'm just alone. I'm on my own now. Like, you know, I originally thought that conservatives were the dumb ones. And now I I'm, I'm need some conservative friends, but I haven't really made any. And I come across this documentary called Why Beauty Matters by the British philosopher Sir Roger Scruton. And in this documentary, Sir Roger Scruton is talking about, you know, why beauty really matters in fulfilling the deepest longings of the human heart and how beauty helps us to not feel alone in the world. And Scruton specifically praised the Christian Catholic tradition and the emphasis on beauty in churches and cathedrals, how even like when we would build basic buildings in a neighborhood, we would ask the question, does this building somehow point people to God? Is the church the highest building in the society or in the neighborhood? And when I listened to what Sir Roger Scruton had to say, I was like, yeah, I want, I want to learn more about this vision of beauty that he has. And I realized that Sir Roger Scruton was actually uh, Britain's leading philosopher uh, in conservatism. And so I began reading his books, I developed an email friendship with him. And although he was Anglican, I mean, he played a huge part in me becoming conservative. And so let me just explain very briefly like what conservatism is, because I think for a lot of us, like when we hear that, we think like maybe, I don't know, libertarianism, don't tread on me. We might think of all sorts of things, right? But conservatism as a political philosophy is pretty distinct, right? So it's not really an ideology. 
So some political ideologies, they have oppressor and victim and conservatism doesn't deny that those are realities, but that's not the whole picture. Conservatism is basically a philosophy on prudence, on being careful with what you do in a society. So look, if you want to reform something, if you want to change something, go ahead. That's great. But do you know the cost? Do you know what exactly you're changing? If you're going to go against a tradition, do you know why that tradition was there in the first place? And undergirding conservatism is this vision known as the tragic vision. And it's this idea that good things are easily destroyed, but not easily created. And so we have this conserving instinct to protect and cherish the things that we love. Conservatism also teaches that institutions and traditions aren't bad things. <laughs> they are actually natural. Right? So as Aristotle teaches, man is a political, social animal. And so we naturally form institutions to protect the things we value, like rights and liberties, but also our traditions and the things that we valued over the centuries, our great accomplishments. There's also perfectionism. So conservatives believe that the government should have a solid moral vision and enact that moral vision. They shouldn't pretend to be morally neutral on the most controversial issues in the nation. And the last thing is that conservatives will emphasize subsidiarity. And as Catholics, I think we can all agree on that, right? That's, that's basic Catholic social doctrine, that the lowest necessary authority to solve the issue should be the one consulted. So not everything should be pitched up to like the king or to the president, but if it can be solved at a local level, then let it be solved at a local level. So what I learned from my conversion from being liberal to conservative are really two things. The first is that all of us have a fundamental human need to be heard. When I was pro-life and I was trying to communicate with my pro-choice friends, I remember the way that they would humiliate me, the way that they'd mock me, the way that they wouldn't want to listen to me at all. And it made me really wonder, like, how do people who are not Christians, how do they feel when they enter a church? Or how have people from the LGBT community felt based on their treatment from other Christians and Catholics? And so I developed this desire based on that experience and that shared empathy to try and make sure that no one ever felt like they were ignored by me, that they felt like they were heard. But the second thing I learned is that we cannot compromise truth. If there is a truth, such as that every member of the human family has intrinsic inalienable moral dignity, then that is an, ob that is an ob object of debate that isn't subject to a vote. That's something that we have to live out and not just you know in the ballot box, but something that we actually do in our everyday lives. Do we actually care for the women that are in our community? Do we actually promote men and women? Do we promote healthy relationships and healthy marriages? Do we actually try and promote an ethic of life? These are the questions that I was asking myself. But even on questions like the unity of the church, I realized that when we talk about the unity of the church, there are some people who want unity at the price of truth. They want unity at the price of central doctrines on the person of Christ or on what he taught with his gospel of life. But we're not at liberty to debate the Lord. We're not at liberty to change those things that the apostles and Jesus had handed to us. And so here's the part that you've been waiting for, the conversion from being Baptist to Catholic. So I don't know if it's obvious by now, but you know, for a while I had a preaching ministry, and so I'd go to different churches and I'd talk about, um, you know, how do we get to the secular age? Why is it so hard for people to believe in God nowadays? And I'd give these talks and I'd give these sermons, and I'd be constantly researching and trying to understand the medieval scholastics, like Saint Thomas Aquinas. And I was like, you know, these guys that we think are backwards and you know, medieval dark ages guys, they actually got a lot right. I mean, their stuff on Aristotle solid, right? Their, their views on what makes a good society, I was like, yeah, we really need this nowadays. And so when I entered Kansas State University, I took a class during my um, second semester of my freshman year, and it was about medieval political and social thought. And the premise of the class was we were learning how do we get from secularism, or excuse me, how do we get from Christendom to secularism? And we read a book, a really fat book by Charles Taylor called A Secular Age. And in that book, Charles Taylor basically argues that the Reformation played a huge role in getting us into secularism, to getting us into a disenchanted view of reality, a view of reality that is devoid of the sacraments, 
a view of reality that is fragmented, that doesn't have a reference or foundation point in tradition, but rather in the self and the individual against the institution. And at that point, I just said, man, I don't know if I want to be Protestant anymore. And so, God bless her heart, there's this beautiful Catholic girl in my class, her name is Olivia. And Olivia, you know, I've known her since high school, and she comes up to me, she's like, hey, Swan, do you want to go to Mass with me this Sunday? And I was like, yeah, you know, like, the stuff that we're learning in class, like, we were talking about transubstantiation, the sacraments, I was like, yeah, I want to see what this Catholic thing is for myself. Not, not from a side door, or just like walking in and out, right? But this time, actually going to Mass. And so I went to Mass for the first time in my life, and, you know, I sit in the back with Olivia and, you know, uh, you know, the, the bell rings and the priest comes in, they're carrying in the gospels. And I'm just thinking to myself, this is pretty cool. You know, there's incense. I'm just like, this is something that I've never really experienced before as a Baptist. And at the very end, I just tell Olivia, hey, I love this. And every Sunday I keep going back to mass. So, you know, in the morning I'd be Protestant by night, I'd be Catholic. Um, <laughs> And so summer comes by and, you know, I'm working at my dad's ministry and my dad has a ministry working with uh, inner city youth and, el and elderly people. And I spend that summer really spending time with a lot of Hispanic children. And so a lot of the Hispanic children that I meet they're you know, they, they were raised in Catholic families, right? And so they, you know, some of them nudged me to think about it, right? And others of them were like, you know, making me move and making me young again, right? And so by the end of the summer, I prayed God, make me like a child. Please don't make me like an old man. And that's not against any elderly men. I'm just saying like the idea of the old man that Paul's talking about, okay? Um, but I was like, God, don't, don't let me be an old man, you know, fixed in my ways, stubborn, convinced that I'm right. Make me like a child. Make me want the truth. Make me love to seek the word of God and to seek your face. And so when I went into my sophomore year, I talked to Olivia again, and I had these barrage of questions. And Olivia said, hey, you should talk to this guy named Andy. And so Andy was also a convert to Catholicism. He was raised by a Calvinist father. So, you know, his father was a preacher and fire and brimstone, you know, the whole deal. And Andy was at one point a really what they call a cage stage Calvinist. Like he was willing to go and fight the Catholics and defend the Reformation. And Andy eventually became Catholic. And Olivia said, I think he'd be the perfect guy for you to talk to. So Andy and I, we, we meet at a coffee shop and we, you know, we, we talk about some basic things. And so we get into various issues like, you know, justification, Mary, the papacy, the Eucharist and all these other things. And one by one, you know, I, I text Andy and I'd be like, Hey Andy, I think I'm like 25% convinced of Catholicism today. And then Andy would later ask me, Swan, why did you send me those weird texts, like your percentage of how convinced you are? I don't know. I just thought it was a fun way to quantify it, right? But I mean, I, I just want to talk about a little bit on the issues that I struggled with and how I got through them, right? So like there was the first issue that I asked Andy about, you know, before I got to marry the papacy and the Eucharist, I got into justification, because as you know, the, one of the battle cries of the Reformation is that, look, if, the ju if justification is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls, right? And so I really wanted to know, do you Catholics believe in works-based salvation? Because that was the whole rallying cry of the Reformation. And so if the reformers got that right and you got that wrong, I have no reason to change my mind. I might still go to mass to enjoy the aesthetic, but I'm not going to actually give my life to this particular church. And Andy began explaining the Catholic position on justification. And I was like, wait a minute, I already believe this. You know, this idea that you have to cooperate with grace, this idea that, that the miracle of salvation begins on the side of God, that it's not you starting the miracle, it's not you moving towards God, but that God moves towards you first, he opens up the possibility of salvation and you can respond to that gift. But you have to also remain faithful until the end. You have to have final perseverance. And you read this clearly in the Gospel of Matthew. And it reminds me that actually, you know, the reason why I already basically had the Catholic view of salvation was because my sister had struggled with it first. And, you know, she was reading St. Augustine in class and she was reading about the Reformation and she was really struggling. And 
eventually she came down to St. Augustine's position on the issue. And so I already had some good catechesis from my sister on this particular topic. I just want to give her a shout out. She became Catholic last year. So, you know, <laughs> um, but then the more I also studied like, you know, passages like, for instance, James 2.24, right, where man is not justified by faith alone, but by works. But then Paul says that man is justified by faith such that there's no boasting, right? So that no man may boast. And I started asking myself, okay, how exactly do you resolve what Paul is saying and what James is saying? And then I realized that Paul is talking about how do you enter into the covenant, right? So he's talking about this thing called initial justification. So how do you enter into this relationship with Christ? Well, guess what? It's not, that relationship was established by Jesus Christ on the cross and it's his merit and his work that begins that relationship. You and I did not do anything. You know, some people compare it to like how we were born, right? We didn't do anything to be born. It was all our parents and it was God, right? But we received that gift of life and then we have to continue living. We have to continue feeding ourselves and growing. And so when James is talking about how you're not justified by just faith alone, but by works, James is talking about how do you remain in the covenant? And so I realized that James and Paul were talking about these two different questions and that that's how you can actually resolve the issues at hand. But I mean, I think the biggest thing was actually Matthew chapter 14 when, with the miracle of Peter walking on water, right? If you remember with that miracle, it's all the power of Christ, right? It's not Peter on his own power walking on that water, but Christ giving him that power. And so long as Peter kept his eyes on the Lord, he was able to do something that men on their own power do not have the power to do. And as Peter was walking towards Christ, but then he got distracted and looked away, what happened? He started sinking. And then he cried out to Christ, and then Christ lifted him up and said, oh, you of little faith. But then I realized that Christ's grace requires, it requires our cooperation to some extent, right? Like it wasn't the case that Jesus failed Peter. It was the case that Peter had failed Christ at that moment. And so when I started realizing that even in the New Testament, you see this idea of cooperation or synergism, I just said, yeah, I mean, the Catholic position on justification makes sense. Let me just say one last thing, because this was the big issue. The more I read Martin Luther and the more I studied the man's life, the more I realized that this guy who was like a hero for me growing up and was like, you know, every October 31st, we'd celebrate him. I started realizing that he was actually a tragic figure. It, it was kind of like the moment when you realize the emperor has no clothes, right? Like I, I started looking at how Luther struggled to believe that God really loved him. And when I looked at the Catholic faith itself, I realized that the problem was not the Catholic faith. I mean, Luther was struggling with scrupulosity, with every single little thing, and didn't, wasn't able to trust in the, the power of the sacrament that he was receiving. And even like when you look at the logical kind of position of Luther, you realize that there's actually a fatal contradiction, that this was a man who was deeply struggling and not able to form really a coherent theory of justification. So for instance, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Robert C. Coons. He's a professor in UT Austin. Uh, he's a Lutheran convert to Catholicism. And in his book, A Lutheran's Case for Catholicism, he points out a fatal contradiction within the Lutheran theory of justification. So here's the argument. And trust me, this one works. So the first is this. Most Lutherans and people who aren't Calvinists, they believe that you can lose your salvation, right? The second thing that they believe is that you can strengthen your faith. So as a Lutheran, you might believe that you can receive, you know, strength from the sacraments. If you're just a Baptist like me, or like I was, um, you might believe that if you read scripture, go to Bible study, right, remain devoted, that can strengthen your faith. But then the third proposition that a lot of Protestants affirm is that you have no role in your salvation at all. But if you think about it, those three pr propositions are in contradiction to each other. I mean, you can lose your faith, you can play a part in making sure that you don't lose your faith, but you have no part in your salvation, right? I started realizing at that point that, okay, Protestants and Catholics, most of the time they're asking different questions when it comes to the issue of justification. And that for the most part, like 75% of Protestants probably already accept the Catholic view on justification anyway. All right, here's the second thing. This is my bread and butter, the papacy, right? So um, I asked Andy, okay, Andy, show me where the papacy is in scripture. Where's this Pope hat guy, you know, who's giving orders from on high? And Andy pointed out 
the Isaiah 22, 22, Matthew 16, 19 parallel, right? So if you remember the confession in Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 16, 19, Jesus says to Peter, you know, thou art Peter and upon this rock, I'll build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And whatever you, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And then Andy opened up to Isaiah 22, 22, speaking of an Israelite prime minister named Eliakim. And it says, I will give him the key to the house of David. And what he opens, no one will shut. And what he shuts, no one will open. And for me, the scales just fell off around my eyes. And I was like, yeah, that's totally a valid typological parallel. And then the more I started studying the issue, like for instance, I started looking back at what Protestant theologians and commentators were saying. There was unanimous agreement since the 1970s that the person of Peter is the rock of Matthew 16, 18. Let me repeat that again. It has been the consensus of New Testament scholars since the 1970s that it is the person of Peter that is the rock of Matthew 16, 18. As a Protestant, I thought that this was an open debate. I thought that I could say, oh yeah, the, Jesus is the rock of Matthew 16, 18, or Peter's faith is the rock of Matthew 16, 18. But no, I mean, I opened up Charles Talbert's 2011 commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, he mentions that in 1976, Charles Burgess identifies that the consensus is shifting. Encyclopedia Britannica, 1985, the consensus is reaffirmed. Uh, the Lutheran scholar Oscar Kuhlmann in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament in 1996 reiterates that the consensus has remained. And then Charles Talbert in 2011 once again says, Peter's the rock. So then I realized that, wait a minute, there's way more going on here with the papacy than I originally realized. And then I finally stumbled across a book by another Lutheran scholar, um, and the book has a ridiculously long title, but it's basically about John 21, 15 and 19, and it's by a Lutheran named Roger David Oss. And in that book, Roger David Oss, a Lutheran scholar, he makes the argument that Christ instituted Peter as his successor, as head shepherd over Israel, and that Peter's succession was similar to when Moses had instituted Joshua as his successor over Israel. I'm like, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> you, you Protestant scholars, you're supposed to be on my side, right? You're supposed to help me not become Catholic. And when I was looking at all these arguments and putting the pieces together, like for instance, when I started studying, what does binding and loosing mean in the Jewish context of the New Testament? It was the power of the rabbis and the sages to declare doctrine on faith and morals and to excommunicate heretics. Does that sound familiar? Where do we get this idea from? And so the final nail in the coffin for me on the issue of the papacy was when I just simply reflected on the fact that I'm conservative, that I believe that institutions and traditions are good, and that we need to have a principle of unity in order to ensure that we have a common confession and a common creed, that in order to have unity, I mean, you need to have soft power in terms of people voluntarily forming an association, trusting the institution, but you also need hard power in terms of that institution being able to definitively say, this is what we believe. You're either in or you're out. To the third point then, the Blessed Mother, right? So Andy showed me that Mary in the New Testament is the typological fulfillment of the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. And he showed me the parallels left and right. So for instance, in 2 Samuel chapter nine, when the ark is recaptured from its enemies and presented before King David, King David says, how is it that the ark of the Lord should come to me? And then the ark stays with David for three months. When we look at Luke chapter one and Mary visits Elizabeth, Elizabeth says, how is it that the mother of the Lord may come to me? And then Mary stays with Elizabeth for three months. But I think the real sticking point for me was when I looked at the Greek in the New Testament. So in the book of Exodus, when the Shekinah, or the glory of God, comes upon the Ark of the Covenant, the Greek that's used there, and I might be butchering this, is episkiasio, right? That particular Greek word to convey that God has overshadowed a particular place, or his glory is over it. When you look in the New Testament, and it describes the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary, it's the same Greek word that's used in the book of Exodus for God overshadowing the Ark of the Covenant. I don't know how you can get around that. I mean, thank God for Steve Ray, because he also helped me out on this issue. 
But I even like started looking at like Lutheran bloggers and Protestant scholars, and I was like, some of them were recognizing that this typology is totally valid and there. And so I realized that, look, I'm trying to be as fair with the evidence as possible. I'm going to the Protestant sources. And when I don't just look at the surface level arguments, but I actually dig into the scholarship, I read the commentaries, I read the sources in their original context. I start seeing things pop out that actually the Catholic church got it right. And the tradition wasn't something invented by men. It was something from God through men. And especially, you know, as a, as a Wednesday night teacher at my Baptist church, <laughs> you won't believe this. There was one night where this girl asked me a question, right? A very adorable little girl. And she said, Swan, God wants us to have a mother and a father, right? You know my answer to that. And I said, yes. And she said, and God's our father, right? And I said, yes. And then she said, but who's our mother? And that simple question from a child completely floored me because I started realizing that you know, when I was a kid growing up in the Baptist church and even the children that were in my Wednesday night class, they were always asking me, Swan, why are there so many denominations when Jesus says that he wants us to be one? And you know, the typical answer I'd give is like, oh yeah, you know, Jesus wants us to be one in like the basics of mere Christianity. I mean, that's not what he said. Um, <laughs> Jesus said, Father, let them be one just as you and I are one. That is a radical kind of oneness. I mean, and when you look at the book of Acts and how the early Christians were, their oneness was one of mind. In Ephesians chapter four, verse 11 to 13, Paul is emphasizing this idea that we need to attain towards the unity of the faith and knowledge in the Son of God. It's not just a unity based on, you know, a basic confession of the gospel, but it's a unity also based on the other things that we believe in the faith and about Jesus Christ. And when I realized that things like the papacy or even the nature of the Blessed Mother are directly connected to the person of Christ, I couldn't separate those two issues anymore and put Mary over here and Jesus over there. I mean, when I saw in Psalm 132 verse eight, arise, O Lord, to your resting place and take with you the ark, the symbol of your power. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place. That's the ascension of Christ in the New Testament already prophesied in the Old Testament. But then it says, take the ark with you. Well, who's the ark in the New Testament? Mary. Oh, so wait, that's where the assumption came from. All the pieces began to fall together. All right, what about the Eucharist, right? This is the one issue that so many Protestants I know struggle with. They're like, do you guys actually eat Jesus? I mean, isn't that kind of weird? Uh, and for me, I had no issue with it. <laughs> you know, I'd grown up as a Baptist. We had kind of this um, ritual memorial view of the Eucharist. You know, it was kind of like for the sake of memory, right? But you know, growing up as an Asian person, I heard people say, you know, you Asians, you eat weird food, right? <laughs> By the time I heard that, as I was considering the Catholic church, I was like, all right, yeah, this is where I'm supposed to be. The Catholics know how I feel about this, you know? And so, I mean, honestly, I, I feel bad saying this, but the Eucharist just wasn't an issue for me. Or maybe I should feel good saying that, right? Um, I mean, there are two last points that I think I could mention. I mean, the other thing that I wanted to look at was just the history and culture of the New Testament. And so, you know, ever since my conversion from liberalism to conservatism, I became really big into history and to study things in their original context, right? And so as I started looking into um, the question of the New Testament, and as I learned, you know, from my time as a conservative, you know, reading people like, well, he's not a conservative, but John Stuart Mill in chapter two of On Liberty, where he's talking about how you should try your best to listen to your opponent in the strongest version of the argument, right? And I had to practice that with my conversion from liberalism to conservatism. And now I was gonna hold myself to the same test going from Baptist to Catholic. I wasn't gonna settle for just, oh, the Pope, the people are, uh, you know, the Pope's infallible and so that means he never forgets his car keys. You know, I'm, I wasn't gonna go to that level of objections anymore. And so as I started looking more deeply, I said, look, I can't interpret the New Testament with the same concern as the reformers. The reformers were worried about a particular situation in a particular time in the 16th century. I can't force the 16th century back into the first century. I have to go back to the beginning and see where the evidence leads organically and naturally. And so where I began was the apostolic fathers. And I said, you know what? I'm not gonna read any church father after the second century. I'm only gonna go to the second century and those church fathers in the first century. And man, that rocked my world. 
I mean, Clement of Rome, in his letter, First Clement, now dated by scholars to before 70 AD, before the destruction of the temple, before the Gospel of Matthew was written, maybe around the time the Gospel of Mark was written, saying, you know, um, you know, talking about the importance of the office of bishop um, and talking about, for instance, in chapter 44, verse 1 to 3, our apostles knew through our Lord Jesus Christ that strife would arise over the office of bishop. And therefore, having received perfect foreknowledge, they afterwards appointed those already mentioned. And afterwards, they added a codicil or a rule to the effect that if these men should die, other approved men should succeed to their ministry. Apostolic succession. And then I started looking on issues related to, you know, Ignatius of Antioch talking about don't do anything apart from the bishop. And I'm like, wait a minute, where's my bishop? <laughs> and looking at these guys weren't just like random, you know, Christians in the early centuries. These were men who are mentioned by name by the apostles like Clement in Philippians 4, 3, or men who knew the apostles personally. And as I had learned from Protestant scholars like Craig S. Keener in his book, Christobiography, these memories of these men are so early that they are historically reliable. I can't just dismiss them because I have already theologically said I'm Protestant. I have to hold my Protestant faith at that moment to the standard of evidence. You know, and I remember too, as a Protestant, you know, I'd go out evangelize, I'd try to convince people, but now it was time for the Catholics to evangelize to me. It was time for me to get a taste of my own medicine, right? And see if my own convictions could survive the test. And what I found was that they did not. The last thing that I wanna mention with the issues that concerned me was the issue of Catholicity, right? So, you know, C.S. Lewis has this really famous argument for Christianity where he says like, look, the reason why Christianity is the one true religion is because it is the universal myth. And by myth, he doesn't mean like something false. He means like a founding story that all of us share together, right? And so what people point out is like, oh, you know, Christianity seems to have elements of Buddhism or it copies from this religion or that religion. And people would say, that means that Christianity is false. Lewis reversed the argument and said, no, that means Christianity is true because all these other religions were anticipating the coming of Christ and the final revelation of God to mankind as fulfilled in the mission and life of Jesus. But then I started asking myself, is Protestantism universal? Is it, does it have this mark of Catholicity that we know that the church must have? And what I realized is that, wait, Protestantism is not the norm. It's not the default. I mean, growing up in the United States, I thought everybody was Protestant and it was just like some weird Catholics and Orthodox like over there in the East that are like doing weird stuff, right? Um, but then I started realizing, wait a minute, I can't take for granted my Protestant tradition. You know, I say like, hey, I'm a Sola Scriptura guy. I don't believe in tradition. No, I definitely depended upon the tradition of the Baptists before me who had interpreted the scriptures, said this is what this means, and then I handed it and, re and had received it from them. And so I realized that, look, things like a priesthood, things like miracles that are still happening today in pretty radical, crazy ways, um, the idea of like an altar, the idea of rituals, the idea of sacraments, the idea of natural law, these are all things that I could find in my own Asian culture. I mean, I remember, you know, when I was back in India, uh, you know, in 2012, uh, my village has a group of men that are called the elders, right? And I think women too. And so we wanted to build a house in a particular place, but one of the elders one night had a dream that some evil spirit had arisen from that land. And so they stopped building halfway through. I mean, my culture is very much supernatural. It very much believes that that spirit is still moving and working in the world. And so this idea of sacraments really wasn't troublesome for me. Or even, you know, I still remember when I visited my grandfather on my dad's side, my grandfather, you know, he had prayed on the day of his anniversary that it wouldn't rain. And when I woke up in, you know, 2012, I saw that it was raining horribly outside. And so I said, oh man, well, grandpa, I'm sorry that this didn't work out. And as we're driving across the bridge to get from our hotel into my grandfather's neighborhood, there's a clear line on the bridge where the rain had stopped and had not entered into his neighborhood. And so when I had like these kinds of experiences, they made me totally believe in things like Our Lady of Fatima. They made me totally accept this idea of like Eucharistic miracles. I mean, sometimes when I hear Protestants say like, hey, it's just a piece of bread. I mean, maybe if you just saw Jesus, you'd think, hey, that's just flesh and blood. That's just a man. 
right? But if you know further, if you really sit with Christ, if you sit with the Eucharist, you know, you realize that it's not just any ordinary, well, it's not even bread. And so I realized at that moment then that really Catholicism is the universal religion. For me as an Asian person, the more I learned about my culture, the more I learned about human cultures, the more I started seeing that Protestantism is very much a Western thing. It's very much a niche in this particular place. I mean, even as I thought about, for instance, in Asian cultures, how, you know, there's an, there's an emphasis on ancestors talking to them, being in communion with them. And then I saw the culture of the saints in the church. That makes total sense. All right. So here's when I finally became Catholic. That was, that was a long part, by the way. I apologize for that. But, you know, Andy and I, we're in a bookstore and I just suddenly start, I almost burst out into tears. And I tell Andy, I realize that I haven't been home. For 19 years of my life, I have not been home as a Christian. And Andy told me, Swan, God's not going to waste your time as a Protestant. And I, I, I hope that's true. <laughs> but as I think more about my conversion, you know, one of the number one things that people ask me is this, like, how did your family react? I mean, just try to think about this for a moment, right? Like you've been raised in the faith. Um, I can't say your dad's a priest, but imagine your dad's like a pastor, right? Um, and you were raised in this way of life and very much religion is part of your culture. It's part of your society. It's part of a mark of pride and unity for your family. And then you say, hey, I'm gonna become this thing that says that this thing is wrong. It was difficult. I mean, at first my parents were just kind of like, what? Like, <laughs> this came out of the blue. Like, no, you're, you're, you're our good Baptist boy. You're our, our boy is gonna go preach the gospel to the world. You're gonna be a Baptist minister. And I said, mom, dad, I just, I can't shake this conviction that the Catholic church was built by Christ and that it's my home and that's where I'm meant to be as a Christian. And even to this day, I still think about the reactions that people had, some of the, some of the vicious anti-Catholic prejudice that's here in America and across the world. And I wonder, like, even for people who are calling themselves Christians and yet hating on Catholics in this way, how can you say that's of Christ? I mean, these kinds of things, they really shook me to my core. And I still remember to this day, one of the worst things that was ever said was that your dead grandfather would be ashamed of you. So in a lot of ways, my spirit was broken. I felt wounded. And I'm like, Christ, is this the cross that I have to carry? Is this what you're asking me to do? Lord, I know you said in the gospel of Matthew that anyone who loves his family more than you is not worthy of you, but God, can I handle this? Or I'd, I'd read the book of Luke and it would say that if you hesitate at the plow, then you're unworthy of service to the kingdom of heaven. I said, God, I'm not hesitating, but can you give me the strength to make it through? And I started reading more about St. Thomas Aquinas. And I learned that when St. Thomas was 19 years old, he secretly joined the Dominican order and his parents threw a fit, locked him in a tower, and his brothers tried to seduce him with a woman of ill repute. And the more I learned about St. Thomas's life, the more I realized that I had a brother in heaven. I had somebody who, was go who had gone through what I had gone through before. And so for the first time in my life, I had actually prayed to a Catholic saint. And I said, St. Thomas Aquinas, I need your intercession. And I remember I immediately heard this voice that said to me, Swan, you've been a good son to your mother and father, but now I want you as my own. And I knew at that moment that that was the voice of God. I talked to a Baptist minister and I told him all these things and I was telling him, you know, I really need help. I'm trying to figure out, should I become Catholic or not? And this Baptist minister said, Swan, I think this is the Holy Spirit working through you. And even though I'm gonna be sad that you're leaving the Baptist tradition, I know that you're gonna do good things in the Catholic church. And as I went on and got closer to Easter and I, you know, I still had to deal with some struggles from families and friends who were still trying to figure out how this swan that they had known for all these years, this very devout Baptist had suddenly become a Catholic who had believed in, who's now believing in works-based salvation and Mariolatry and all these things, how he could still be a Christian. And I just prayed to the Lord one day, Lord, I'm ready to lose all things for Christ who completes me. 
Because you see, I'm ready to lose all things, right? For Christ who completes me. And so in the end, I didn't really lose anything. And I still remember in the gospels when the, the disciples, they asked Jesus, Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. What do we get in return? And Jesus doesn't say, don't ask for a reward. You know, don't ask for an achievement at the end. Jesus says, I'm gonna give you 12 thrones from which you would judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And I realized that Jesus was in the business of sharing his life with the people that he loved. He was in the business, yes, he gives them the cross, he gives them the struggles that come with being a Christian, but he also gives them the power to absolve sins in his name. He gives them the power to raise people from the dead. Jesus gives men and women the power to do wonderful things in his name. And so what I realized is that with the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church fully embraces the ramifications of the incarnation. Because look, men on their own power are not infallible. Wives, just talk to your husbands, right? But through the power of Christ, through the infallibility of Christ and sharing that authority with men, he says in John 20, 23, whoever sins you retain shall be retained. Whoever sins you loose shall be loosed. And the more I study these things, the more I realize that the Christ that I had fallen in love with was actually the Christ of Catholicism. So, so far the story is going pretty well, it's beautiful. And then COVID-19 happens and I can't be confirmed on Easter vigil and I have to just watch the live stream Easter vigil. It's, 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 it's really lame in terms of what it could be, right? But still Easter vigil was great. But I wasn't confirmed in the church and as summer goes along, I'm just like, oh, you know, I, I don't know what I'm gonna do anymore. And then finally, near the end of the month, um, the priest says, I think we can have you confirmed on Pentecost when the, the day the, church, the Holy Spirit descended and the church really got kicking and moving. And I was like, that, I can't imagine a better day. And so I went to confession um, before I was to receive the Eucharist for the first time once again. So I'd been going confession regularly. And this time I heard the same voice that had spoken to me when I prayed to St. Thomas. And it said, Swan, I will give you intimate access to my body and you will never hunger for love again. I went up to receive the Eucharist for the first time in my life. I bit down on the sacrament and the, 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 the bread, the consecrated host had broken in that moment in such a way that I immediately saw Christ's body on the cross as if it was just right there in front of me. And I realized at this point that Christ had given me his body, not only on the cross, but also in his church, his body that's still living and breathing today, still speaking to us. It's a body that hasn't abandoned us. It's a body that is not just confined to the book of Acts in the New Testament. It's a church and a body that's still living and moving today and guiding us into truth. I realize that as a Christian, I'm not alone. I don't have to figure all this out by myself. I have the host of angels and saints. I have the church fathers. I have the tradition of the church and that I can still believe that that active spirit is moving and flowing in the world today. And so here's the last thing I wanna to say to everybody. The Catholic Church is the world's hidden treasure. It's an institution that's hated. It's an institution that's mocked. It's a faith that people revile. But when you look more closely into what the Catholic Church is, it is a piece of Christ himself that is still on the earth. It is a piece of the one who loves us. It is a piece of the Savior who died for us that is still living today, that is still speaking today, that is giving men the gift of infallibility, that is giving dead sinners like you and me the gift of baptism and justification and redemption and regeneration. We are no longer dead, but Christ is now living in us and we are the church. I want to say to you, do not be ashamed of being Catholic. Do not be embarrassed of being Catholic. I gave up everything to join this religion. So, you know, live up to it, right? <laughs> this is not a faith that I'm ashamed of. And when I look at you and I look at God's people, I know that the church, the Catholic church is the institution, is the body that I want to give my life to completely. You know, people complain about why is the church so institutional? Uh, why do you have organized religion? My first question is, what's the alternative? Disorganized religion? But the second thing is that the church is an institution because it is Christ's kingdom. Christ, the Messiah, Yeshua, he conquered Rome. And that's why the Bishop of Rome is the head of the church. The Messiah really did make good on his promises 2000 years ago. It's not the Pharisees, it's not the emperor, it's the successor of Peter 
that is on the throne in Rome. It is Christ's messianic kingdom here and now. It is the fulfillment of what David and the prophets had said, and you and I are living in that today. The Old Testament is our history. The New Testament was our beginning. When I think about the real presence and the embarrassment of riches that we have as Catholics, you know, people say like, why do Catholics believe so many extra things? What kind of God is God? He's a God who spoils us with riches. He gives us things that we think are extra, that we think we don't need because he's a good father. I wanna say to you, do not abandon the church. If the church was just any other institution, then I wouldn't have given up everything, including my family, including my friends, including the good life that I had been living. But precisely in giving up my life to Christ, I found an even greater life, a life that's worth losing and giving everything for. So my very last thing, you know, so sometimes as Baptists, we like to say last thing, but we got five more things to say. Absolute last thing, get ready for more converts. I constantly get messages from people saying that they're entering the church, that some podcast or debate that I did is helping them or some other person from Catholic Answers or whatever, like a, simply a Catholic who invites them to mass, that's enough to get them to really consider becoming Catholic. And so as more people enter the Catholic church, let's get our act together, right? Let's start dealing with some of the divisions that we have, but let's show the world the beauty of the Catholic faith and the fact that because we believe in the real presence, because we believe in the gift of the magisterium in the church, that supernatural power is still with us and will be with us till the end of time. Thank you.